0: We're going to pick up in John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25, and read to the end of the chapter. Up to this point in our journey through the book of John, we've simply been introduced by John, one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, one of the best friends of Jesus, one of the 12 apostles, as he has introduced us to Jesus by introducing us to people that don't quite get Jesus. So if you're in this room and, and you, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you have a lot of skeptical questions and doubts about who Jesus is, I want, I'm so glad you're here. This is, this is a great Sunday for you to be here. In fact, I'm glad you're here and, and to a great extent, you're why I'm here. You're, I, I want to begin to invite you to bring all those questions, bring that skepticism to the text, and John invites those questions and, and invites us to, to hold up what it is that we have believed about Jesus or even been taught about Jesus against the words of Jesus Himself. We're to hold up what we believe or have been taught about Jesus against the words of Jesus Himself. Let, let Jesus' words really measure and weigh out what it is that you think He is or what it is that you believe that He is. Let the chips fall where they may. And whether those are skeptical words, questions, doubts, he says, bring them, bring them here. Let me introduce you to my best friend, Jesus. So last week we saw in the first half of this chapter that to believe in Jesus, right, to to really test what we believe about Jesus against the words of Jesus himself is to actually trust in his timing, not just trusting him with the world, but trusting how and when he's doing things The timing and his work to be separate from the world and to be taught by him. But I want to show you this week the follow-up to that. As, As many questions are posed to us in this chapter, John gives us some answers and Jesus even begins to answer some of them for us. So beginning in verse 25, I want to pick up where we've left off. As we're holding up our beliefs against the words of Jesus, there's a sense in which almost every other sermon that that we've like that I've hopefully presented through the gospel of John could be titled very simply Jesus said what like that's that could like that could almost be the title he's he says bizarre absurd things and so I want to encourage you don't be shocked by those or be shocked because he meant them to be but be prepared for those words to, to push against you be prepared to to be provoked by those things. In fact, what he shared with us, as he gave us, gave us a picture of a true and false discipleship where even one of the twelve was going to betray him and didn't quite get Jesus, no matter how close you are, if this doesn't provoke you, you're not listening. Beginning in verse 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not, is not this the man? He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, And the chief priests and Pharisees sent off officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am and it was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Last week we saw the timing and teaching of Jesus, which is eternal, which is from the Father, and points to a better covenant, And so what does Jesus do on His time with the Father's teaching to point to a new and better covenant that points to a new and better Sabbath rest? Well, the end of this chapter that we just read is the answer. And the big question is, who is Jesus and where does He really come from? And the answer we find here that Jesus gives that other people seem to struggle with, the answer God from God. Who is Jesus? He is God. Where does he come from? He comes from God. And they say, no, he's from, he's from Galilee, or maybe he, he's supposed to be from Bethlehem. And some conflicting opinions start being thrown here and there. And we're meant to bring all of our questions. After all, that's the theme of this text. Did you catch all the questions? Most of them unanswered. Literally, some scholars would say this is, there are 20 questions in this text. This is the 20 questions of Jesus throughout chapter 7 and i would ask you some of the same questions what is it that you want from jesus today what is it that you really want from jesus today what do you want from him and maybe even your answer is nothing i didn't i didn't know i didn't know i was supposed to want anything from jesus and the text provokes us. Like, no, you're a thirsty person in need of Jesus. And I'll ask you this, what if he has something that you need that you aren't even aware of? Now we're learning this in my own household, the difference between needs and wants, right? This is, uh, this is a big deal for my household and our children. What do you really need? What do you really want? It's really important as we are Um, considering the the let's let's call it the character and nature of saint nicholas right it's that season and we're asking these questions like what do we really need what do we really want and you'll find for an immature person like a child those are difficult questions to answer right i need this do do you you need that You, you need that right some of, some of you are walking through this even now. What, what is it that I want and what is it that I need? And what we find here is a bunch of people who want a lot of different things from Jesus. And Jesus, just like He has for the last four chapters, provokes them and says, like, even, though you're the one I, even though I'm the one you're looking for, I'm not the one that you really are looking for. And what it is that you want from me isn't even close to the thing that you really need from me. And so I want to encourage you to think, yeah, what, what is it? If you, if you, like even today, what if you were, if I was like, by the, by the end of our time together, you could walk away with the thing that you want from Jesus, right? Even, and even if, even if you're in this room and you're like, I didn't know I needed anything. I didn't know what I was supposed to want. I didn't know Jesus could give me anything. Well, welcome. Jesus gives some things to some people, right? And just ask yourself, what if Jesus gave me the thing I wanted to today? Now, To follow up, I would say, what if that thing that you want isn't even close to the thing that you need? In this chapter of questions, we get lots of theories. We get tons of theories. And while we saw last week that believing in Jesus means trusting also in his time, submitting to his time and and actually submitting to the, the, the current that we'll have to be swimming up against in the world, right? We're not secular but we don't think in terms of only the here and now but we see the eternal nature of things and we see him as the one sent by God to teach authoritatively from God but in this chapter at the end of the chapter we see that to be a believer in Jesus is to experience the actual indwelling presence of the spirit of God by experiencing Jesus as the all-satisfying remedy to the thirst of our souls amazing claims are made by Jesus here That to really believe in him is to actually experiencing the presence of the Spirit of God. This is amazing because if you have questions about Christianity, I want to help answer them. There's no other religion that says you can be united with God. Every other world religion says by by moral practice or by your own behavior, by your own doing, you you can go to God. There, There is a way to God. Right Here is the way, here are the five pillars that will get you to God. Here is like, here's the enlightenment that will get you to God. Like Here is the practices that will work you uh, towards God. And Christianity makes a unique claim that God is actually, and we consider this heavily in this season, God is with us. I mean, that's the nature of even the name Connection Church. We believe in the union with God. By Christ, we are one with God. The dividing wall of hostility that we deserve to be separated from God with has been torn down in Christ, and now that we are united with God, then we are also united with one another. We are one with Christ, such that when God looks at us, He sees the perfection. He sees the finished work. He sees all the things that Christ has done. And credits us. The word we use is impute. It's a mathematical term. He imputes all of those things to us. When he looks at us, the same word that he used out of heaven miraculously to speak approval to Jesus as he was baptized by John, this is my child. This is the one I love. Harkening back to Genesis 22. And in this one, I am well pleased. This is my beloved, such that now united to Christ by faith, God looks at you and me through Christ and says to you, "I don't. this is miraculous, this is amazing. This is my child. This is the one I love. This is the one I'm pleased with. As we say on a regular basis, if you think that the look on God's face when he looks at you is anything other than pleasure, then you are seeing the face of God apart from the work of Christ. If he's disappointed, if God's like, you're not measuring up, if that's what you think God is, then you haven't heard the good news of what Jesus has done to measure up for you, to achieve in all the ways that you and I have failed. So don't miss this. There's a picture of the union with God that God will actually impart his presence through his spirit in such a way that will overflow. How does that happen? Jesus stands up and cries. Twice he does this. He cries out loud, come to me and I'll satisfy you. So measure your claims. Whatever it is that you believe or think about Jesus, measure them against his words here. To be a believer in Jesus is to experience unity with God, the actual presence of God. How do we experience that? By experiencing the satisfaction of God of the thirst of our souls in Christ. Let's walk through this, beginning in verse 25. One of the first things you see here is what took these people by surprise. You see between verse 25 and 26, people of Jerusalem, after even just a few verses before, they were like, hey, Jesus, we're not really trying to kill you, which was a lie. And the people, as tends to be the case, right, the actual people know what's going on, and they say, isn't this the one that, that we've heard that they're trying to kill? And in verse 26, the transition, you see something. What took them by surprise was the very public nature of his proclamation. We'll even see later the volume of his proclamation in the face of such a threat. Don't miss this. This is a part of this is part of what Jesus does and is that is provocative, but you'll, you'll find as when he becomes your hero. This is actually a good thing. Jesus is not silenced, even in the face of a threat. To the end, Jesus is not silenced. He will not be silenced. When he is silent, he is silent because he chooses to be. Ironically, he chooses to be silent, and this is is why we're to be provoked by the nature of Jesus. He's clearly nothing like us. He's silent when most of us would be provoked to be loud. When he's being falsely accused, lied against, he's, he's like, go ahead, says nothing. But he's not silenced unless he wants to be, even in the face of a threat. The power of his words seemed to show he won't back down. And this is a powerful thing for us. He sealed all his words with his blood. This was a man, whatever you make of Jesus, who was willing to die for his words. Right, wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't you make more of my words if something I said even now got me like executed later today? Like, isn't there a sense in which even then, my some, something about my words would be that they, they, they would have like a weight to them because we were willing to pay for them? That's Jesus. So who is Jesus? Is he the one we've been looking for? They begin to ask. Can we really know? And then you see a bunch of conflicting authorities about who who Jesus would be, who the Christ would be. And it's really interesting. As we saw last week, he is the true and better leader in the wilderness. He is the source of manna from heaven. And as we see here in this passage, he is the true and better leader in the wilderness, complete with grumbling and complaining. Notice what happens after that and the way that Jesus is the better Moses, the deliverer through bondage, our natural disposition is to wander, grumble, and complain in unbelief. That's typically what we bring to the table. In the Exodus, God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness on the way to fulfilling His promise, giving Him a place that He would dwell with them and bless them. And in that wandering, many of them turned and they walked away in unbelief. And as they wandered, God fed them, provided for them with miraculous um, bread from heaven. He miraculously parted the Red Sea. While they were in the wilderness, God delivered through Moses the terms of his promise, his word to his people. And what was their response? They continued to wander, grumble, and complain. They turned and many walked away in unbelief by the time they had made it to the promised land. They were unwilling to follow God, and they were unwilling to follow God's chosen leader to see God's promises fulfilled. And we see Jesus walking that same path. Why? Because that's our way of relating. We typically wander, grumble, and complain in unbelief. But Jesus poses a response as he builds up in the face of what you see beginning in verse 32 the muttering and grumbling, right? This is happening. He says some provocative words, right? Where's Jesus really from and he begins to give us some provocative words beginning in verse 34. Look, I'm or 33 and 34. I'm I'm not what you think I am. I'm from a place you don't fully understand. I'm from God and I'll return to God and I'll take you with me. But where I ascend to you won't be able to come with you with me because this isn't the nature of things. You're not God. And so, even though our natural disposition to, to wander and grumble and complain and unbelief may be evident here, I think we're asked to ask, ask a question that Jesus provokes in us: Why? Why is that our natural disposition? And Jesus answers: We're thirsty. We're thirsty. Now, I won't rehash a lot of what we walked through in Chapter Four, where a woman at the well was running from thing to thing, relationship to relationship trying to satisfy what Jesus pointed to was a deeper thirst. Like her sin was rooted in, and even the sins against her were rooted in a deep thirst that she was looking to other things to satisfy. And John introduces Jesus as the greater Moses. The ultimate satisfaction and the ultimate provision. Right? He's the manna that came from heaven. We saw that. He's the passage across the water. We saw that last chapter. But in this case, he's... Also, a source of life-giving water. Now, being the good writer that he is, right? you'll see John, knowing how to build up suspense, do you see what he said? He, He refuses to tell us how it's going to end at first. He said, the chief priests and Pharisees, they sent out officers to arrest him. Now, we don't find out what happens until later. Instead, John tells us that Jesus is trying to say something. Jesus is trying to point us to something. And then we get to verse 35, and this is my favorite. So I just like John. He's a good writer, right? The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go? Because he's like, I'm going to go and you can't follow me. What does he do? And, and, and this, this is great because John, you've got to be just a, like a literature nerd with me for just a moment. So just, if you're a literature nerd, just join me. Like, like, push your glasses up. Just, this is, John introduces irony right cuz if you know the whole story you'll see the irony in this story where where does Jesus intend to go that we won't find him what's he going to do is he going to go to the dispersion is he going to go to the greeks is he going to go teach to these outcasts and and john john's like what's he going to do is he going to like is he going to like go be present with people to the ends of the earth he's like yes 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 he is Right? And you know what happens for the rest of the New Testament. The book of Acts talks about the multiplying nature of the gospel that first goes to Jerusalem. These people, where he is right now, to Judea, the surrounding area, the Samaritans, the people that they didn't like, and even to the ends of the earth. So don't even, don't miss this. This is like the mission of God built into the work of Jesus. Satisfying thirsty people John is ironically already pointing to. Okay. Literature nerds, we're done. we'll, We'll come, we'll try again later, but Notice the irony, like Jesus is doing something and and they still don't get it. You're saying Jesus is going to do something that's going to affect like even the outcasts, the, the irreligious people? Yes. And then the central crux of the text we see beginning in verse 37 to verse 39, we're introduced to something. Jesus satisfies our deepest longings with great abundance. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the greatest day, Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This ought to sound a whole lot familiar, like like, um, like chapter 4 and familiar. This is similar to what he's told the woman. If you knew who I was, I would give you something to drink, and then a well of water would flow out of you. Same thing. But if you will come to me and drink, if you will believe in me and trust that I can satisfy in abundance, something else will happen. So here's, here's, don't miss this. If you find yourself resonating with wandering, or he, here's a grumbling, right? Maybe if just like your life isn't all that you wanted it to be, complaining, which ultimately isn't believing <laughs> that God, uh, God in his sovereign provision will guide you all the way through, right? I, I'm, I'm with you, I resonate with that. That's, that's, where my, from, that's where my grumbling and complaining comes from. And we're invited to consider that really the problem Isn't our circumstance a problem? Is our deep thirst. And the solution is what Jesus has done to satisfy it. That really is it. What is it that makes a Christian? What is it that makes a person a believer? Satisfied thirst in Christ. Don't miss what he said. Like, you you don't get this. I mean, this is provocative. You, you don't know the person who sent me. He is true. I know Him. I'm coming from Him. But you don't even know who He is. Now that's profound. He says, you religious, elite, you educated, proficient, competent achievers do not know God. All your religiosity, all your right living, all your law keeping, all of these things have been ultimately a distraction from the deep thirst that's welling up within you. What a provocative thing to say. You, you, you've been studying the nature of God, studying Scripture to know God, and He says, you don't know God. Why? Because you've never come to Him with a simple, thirsty posture. So we ask these questions. What are the implications of seeing faith as satisfaction of thirst in Jesus? I'm going to walk through some of those things because this might help you to consider and weigh your own, your own understanding of being a Christian against the very words of Jesus. We're simply thirsty people, and Jesus has satisfied our thirst. That's it. Right? So if you're scared of like, you're like, how do I, how do I speak the gospel, the good news to people who don't know it? You just simply start, look, I, I, I have been thirsty my whole life. Here's, I, and I have tried to satisfy this thirst in so many ways. And yet Jesus, out of the overflow and abundance of his grace, has satisfied me. My deepest thirst I no longer have when I look to Jesus. It's that simple. Good news, my thirst has been satisfied in Jesus. I had a thirst and it's ended because of Jesus. That's it. Now let me walk through some of the implications of these things because it'll help you understand whether or not you really believe that. Because if you really believe that, there will be fruit of this. Here's what it means. You don't have to look for anything else for satisfaction for your thirst. Let me be specific. You don't have to look to your job. You don't have to look to relationships. Be it friendships, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, or this will hurt even your kids for satisfaction. You don't have to strangle those things around you to choke out meaning and satisfaction. You're free. Ask yourself this question. Do you harm other people with your thirst? Literally, do you take their life away? Did you notice what happens with people who are satisfied of their thirst in Christ? They actually become, out of their own heart, a flowing river of satisfying living water. Do you take people's life away with your thirst? Or do you actually bring life? are people blessed by your thirst or are they used by it does your thirst lead them to life or are you choking the life out of them to satisfy your own thirst the quenching of that thirst overflows to bless them is that true of you because if you still find your, I'm a Christian, oh yeah, I believe, oh Jesus is good, save me from my sin, all that stuff. Never be specific or anything, but like, Jesus is great, that's all cool, and yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm one of you guys. But if you don't see freedom, if you don't see freedom from the looking to your job, relationships, your family, your status, your competence, your achievement, whatever that is for you, whatever that is the thing that you really want to happen this week, if you don't experience freedom from that, then friend, Confess your thirst to Jesus and receive satisfaction. Just admit it. I mean, have you ever wondered why those things are always like, so elusive? Have you, ever, have, you ever, have, you, have you ever, I mean, I don't want to like, talk down to you, but I'm, I'm going to for a minute. Like, Has it never occurred to you that it's always over the rainbow? Has it never occurred to you that like all the last five things that you thought would satisfy, you didn't? Maybe Has anyone ever stopped you and pointed out that the last five things have like been the same thing, looking for the same, same satisfaction? Relationship to relationship, job to job. This one hurts because religious language is all through this. Church to church. Have you ever noticed how unsatisfying that next thing really is? What's the one thing all of those unsatisfying circumstances have in common? Maybe if you don't get it, I'll rephrase it. What's the one person that all of those unsatisfying circumstances have in common? Place to place, thing to thing, relationship to relationship. Why does it always stink when I get here? What's the one person that those unsatisfying circumstances all have in common Friend, if that opens your eyes, confess that. Admit that I seem to be going from thing to thing and it doesn't give me what I'm looking for. Confess it. Admit it. And then receive the satisfying drink that Jesus gives. He'll say, I know. I've been been following you all along. Now, what if you're not a believer? Here's what I would ask you. Does that sound attractive to you? Like, does that sound awesome to be the kind of person that that like out of the overflow of, of joy and the overflow of satisfaction, you stop harming other people? Have you craved friendships in a community where people aren't trying to choke satisfaction out of one another, but we're just freely overflowing with satisfaction in Christ? Is that attractive to you? Because maybe if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a believer, like, is it possible that this could describe you? Can you envision a future? Where God's presence brings such deep satisfaction in your own soul that it overflows to those around you? Maybe you're a moral person. Maybe you really want to help, right? Have you ever noticed how you just don't ever quite have enough patience or love for the people you want to help? Including if they're your own family, including if they're your own children. Have you ever wondered why you don't have a budget for that? Is it possible? that the source of such love, patience, and care are going to have to come from outside of you? Because if you long for that kind of love, that kind of overflow, then I want to come to Jesus. Did you hear Jesus' words? If you thirst, any one of you, let that person come to me and drink. Take me in, see me, satisfaction. So whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, we're invited to do what? Confess our thirst. I am thirsty and unsatisfied. If you don't really believe me, do something brave. This week, maybe even today, ask the people closest to you this question. What is it that I seem to be thirsty for? Be brave. Ask the people around you. Ask your spouse and maybe see why God put that spouse right where that spouse is. Ask close friends. I don't know, hang out with me a while and ask me. What is it that I seem to be thirsty for? Here's the funny thing, it may only take a few sentences. (laughs) That thing you want to interject into the conversation. And if they're not liars, they'll actually help you. You see the pa- the, excuse me, the pain of confronting your thirst is actually less than the pain caused by the poison you are now consuming that you think will satisfy you. We saw this in chapter four. You Remember what you'll do when you're so dehydrated and thirsty? You'll look inside yourself, right? It's called bare grills. You drink your own urine. It's, it's a real thing. When you, are, when you are dying and delusional and dehydrated in, in, in the desert, where do you look? when you have no other source. Again, Bear Grylls got famous with that answer. And that's us. That seems gross and foolish. What do you think we look like to Jesus who's offering something to drink? Look, when you see your belief as the experience of just simple satisfied thirst, here's another thing that happens, the outflow of this, it destroys any self-righteousness in you. You see, if we see the good news of Jesus as just something that he's done to quench our thirst, then what will happen is we'll actually become deeply empathetic to the people around us. A self-righteous person would look to a person in need or or a person's terrible decisions, even sinful decisions, and be like, well, boy, I'm glad I'm not like you, right? The the self-righteous prayer of the Pharisee, right? That I thank God that I fast and I do this and this. I don't do that. Thank God, right? But like, what if you just simply saw the good news of Jesus as a satisfied thirst? Then when you look at people struggling, hurting, and in pain around you, then you'll just realize, oh, they're just thirsty. (laughs) I know what that feels like. I mean, sure, they're looking to some ridiculous things for satisfaction, but I remember what that felt like, rather than looking at him and going, I'm better than you. I don't know, parent, do you see your children this way? Do you look at your children saying, I'm just a thirsty person satisfied in Jesus, and I've got enough of that overflowing for you, my child? Sure, it takes grace to grow a person in maturity, but are you able to say, I remember what it was like to thirst for something? Here, take some of what's overflowing out of me. I I don't know where it came from. Jesus just gave it to me, and I I somehow find more and more of it than I need. Are you a hoarder of this overflow? I want you to see there's also cultural barriers to this. There are idols working in our current culture that will rob us of this overflow and joy. I want to just address one of them because they're obstacles to experiencing Jesus rightly. Entitlement can kill this. Now, that's an important distinction to make in our current culture. Entitlement does not equal thirst. There's a difference. I, I would say in our current cultural milieu, we're not really good at telling the difference, but entitlement is not the same as thirst. Entitlement will point to a deeper thirst. Thirst. But just notice, if everyone always owes you something, then you'll never experience like satisfaction by looking outside of yourself. Instead, you'll say to Jesus, and you know people like this, it's about time. I deserve that. You're welcome, Jesus. So just because you are without something and longing for something doesn't necessarily mean that you're thirsting for the right thing. Ask people around you to help you distinguish. Is your longing expressed in entitlement or deep soul thirst? Which one is leading to the other? This also cures pride and replaces it with assurance. Think, if assurance that Jesus won't lose us, that he'll bless us, is simply rooted in the fact that we were thirsty and Jesus had what we needed, then the assurance here will feel more like humility, joy, and here's a word, worship. This also helps us understand the nature of sin. We like to think of sin as like the thing you do that you should stop doing. And if the enemy can keep you thinking that's what sin is, he owns you. If the enemy can keep you thinking sin is just the thing I do and I need to stop it, he owns you. But we understand that sin is essentially looking for satisfaction from our deep thirst apart from God. Sin is simply our rebellion against God and His provision. If you just think sin is, okay, I made a bad mistake, I won't do that again. That was a one-off. Then then you'll never experience this because you'll never never be admitting that it's a deep dissatisfaction and hunger in your own soul. You see, truly putting sin to death is confessing the thirst and confessing that Jesus is the satisfaction from that thirst. Anywhere that we are thinking sin as less than a soul thirst unquenched by Christ, we're bound to minimize it, excuse it, but mostly, as we see here, die from it. One of the surefire ways to not experience growth and peace in Christ is to continue to think sin is a thing you did rather than the thirst that you have. Thinking of Jesus that way, to simply get what you want rather than what you really need will leave you dead in the wilderness. We have union with God and his presence and, his presence and a quenched thirst just like the woman at the well except now we see that Jesus is the thirst quencher. He is the thing that satisfies us. So we've got to land on this, all right? I've got to take you, it's going to feel like, we saw in the very end, right, from, chapter, from verse 40 and on, they, they begin to disagree over the words that he said in 37 through 39. And so I'm going to take it's going to feel like a rabbit trail, um, but it's not. And I want to invite you, if you will, all the way back to Numbers chapter 20. And I've got to teach you about this celebration of the tabernacles. You see, the ce- celebration of this tabernacle, remember tent or booth? was a celebration of when God was providing for his people. And even if you can't make your way there, find that you know, you can feel free to use the table of contents. Don't worry, we'll uh, make a note and find it later. I'm just going to skim through parts of Numbers, Numbers chapter 20. This is the event on which the celebration, the biggest celebration in these people's annual year was based on. And it's these people wandering through the desert. But I want you to see exactly how it happened. Verse 1, and the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. So they're in the wilderness. Get this. Verse 2, now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together what? Against their leaders, against Moses and against Aaron, because when God doesn't give you what you want, you look for a person to kill. Wink, wink, right? It's (laughs) ha-ha, right? Okay. And the people did what? Quarreled with Moses and said, what did we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord? I'd rather have died than be in this situation to not have everything I want. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? I love materialism is new, right? Nope. And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Every circumstance is just terrible it is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of the meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Now he said, "Grab the staff, right? The staff was a symbol of God's wrath, authority, and justice, right? And, and that it's a weapon, right? You had the, a shepherd had a crook to help the sheep, right? And a staff to help the wolves, right? So like, there's take the staff and assemble them together. But then, he, what does he say? He says, like, tell the rock. So have the staff that represents God's justice, but then tell, speak to the rock before their eyes to yield its water." You shall bring water out of the rock for them to give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff and from before the Lord as he commanded them. Now guess what happens? Verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, right, he was just supposed to like, hey, God loves you and God forgives you. What does he say? Here now, you rebels. <laughs> Thanks, Moses. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Right, like, Notice, he already uses a different language. Shall we bring water? Like, he, like, I'm good, like God's like, I'm going to do this. And what does he go? He's like, you want me to do this? You want me to help you? Fine. And Moses lifted up his hand, and what did he do? He struck the rock with his staff twice. He didn't tell the rock like God had commanded him. He struck it. You'll see later that this caused him to miss the promised land. But what happened? Water came out Abundantly. And the whole congregation drank, and their materialism, and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given to them. Since Jesus, or excuse me, I always get ahead, slow down. Moses, in his anger, looked at these rebellious people and looked at the rock and struck the rock with the justice, this rod of God, so that water started flowing out. His anger is what we see later. We saw that it was going to keep them from seeing with the rest of the new generation, the promise that was given to them. Something amazing happened. These people in their thirst came to God with their discontentment, their thirst, and even all their sin and rebellion and wandering, and even with the anger and sin of Moses, the justice of God came down on the rock, and in that crushing blow, water, life-giving water, came to everyone. You see, the celebration of the tabernacles involved two things, not just the tents, but also a festival, as we'll see even now, of, of water, and we'll see in a couple weeks, and light, a celebration of the, the light, the glory of God that led them through the wilderness, but a celebration of God's supply of water in an arid place. And so every single day, the priests, they would go and they would, they, would, they would assemble and they would get together with bowls every single day and they would fill them with water from the pool of Siloam. And they would carry them back in and around the altar in a, in a big and, and with much pomp and circumstance, a great Great prominence. And then they would pour the water into these other bowls and they would pour the water out as a drink offering, just like in the desert, in honor of God. And in the middle, what did you catch? I don't know if you caught the setting of this. In the middle of the biggest grand finale of the feast, Jesus stands out. and Don't miss the word twice here. The word, cried out or proclaimed it's the word is krodzo which isn't like preached it's screamed it's shout on the last day of the feast the great day probably as they were pouring out the water to commemorate god's provision for them in the wilderness jesus stands up and what does he do he shouts if any of you would be thirsty come to me and drink believe in me and out of your own heart will flow waters living waters Do you get the controversial nature of this? That'd be like in the middle of some sort of, I mean, I don't know, you know, in in the middle of some sort of celebration, like your birthday party, I jumped up and said, you're welcome. If you need anything, come see me. Thanks for being here, right? Like, just stole the glory, right? This is similar to like a, you know, any holiday, like July 4th, right? Gathering together, celebration for July 4th, and someone runs up to the stage and says, if you really want independence, follow me. Right? Like, this is what Jesus did. In the moment where they were commemorating God's provision for their deep thirst in the wilderness, Jesus stands up and says, if you really want satisfaction, you look to me. Let me read to you Isaiah 55. They would have sung the Hallel, which is Psalm 113 all the way to 118. I encourage you to read it. Psalm 55 says this, come, or excuse me, Isaiah 55 says this, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk. These are luxury, right? Luxurious items without money, without price. Jesus doesn't want your money. God doesn't want your money. He wants you. Why do you, oh, get this. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Verse three, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Don't miss the, the cry and invitation. If you want something, you come to me. They would have sung Isaiah 12. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In the middle of this Great feast, Jesus stands up and he shouts. And so you'll say, Why all the shouting? Jesus, why are you shouting? Jesus, what's all the noise about? Do you hear what he's saying? Jesus, why are you shouting? Because you don't have to thirst anymore, you don't have to wander anymore. The justice, the punishment of God, the rod that you and I rightly deserved, has come down on Jesus, our cornerstone, and crushed was he that out of him has flown life-giving water. And if this seems absurd to you, and you think, why, how would Jesus really satisfy me? I just think you're only saying that because you know you've tried other things that haven't really satisfied your thirst, and you think Jesus won't either. Friend, let me tell you, you've never tried anything like Jesus. He won't let you down I know you've been let down before I know how that feels to go after something that you really think will satisfy and then you find out it's vanity it's meaningless and maybe you'll even say on a weekly basis Jonathan why all the shouting why the shouting Jonathan the end of I of Isaiah 12 puts it this way with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation You will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among all the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Here it comes shout, sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Jonathan, why do you shout at me every Sunday? Because you don't have to thirst anymore, you don't have to wander anymore. The judgment of God has come down rightly. And even though we deserved it, it crushed Jesus. And now that stone on which we might also be crushed, instead we have a foundation, a sure foundation. Why are you shouting, Jonathan, for great in your midst is the Holy One of God? Come to Him with thirst. Come to Him with nothing. Can you do that? Come to him with thirst. You don't have to thirst anymore. Jesus is our all-satisfying presence and drink. Let's pray. God, we confess to you uh, that our own thirst is so strong and palpable that it hinders us from even being able, being able to see straight, to think rightly. It hinders our ability to love family. It hinders our ability to care for people. It hinders our ability to see Jesus. God, I thank you that while we were deep in our thirst, you have provided a means of satisfaction. I thank you that the rod has come down And it has not come down on us, but that Jesus has willingly borne the price of our rebellion, our grumbling, our muttering, our wandering, our unbelief, our sin. If there's some in this room that they're they're even now, can Jesus be all this? (laughs) Can Jesus even possibly be all that he's being made out to be right now? Would you even now begin to, to stir their imagination? Would they consider the possibility that that's just their own unsatisfied thirst talking? I've tried things that haven't worked. Would you even now give them the faith to look to Jesus and confess thirst? May we all look to Jesus and admit all the ways that we've tried to be satisfied with things that are lesser than him, that are not as worthy as him. And in that confession, may we experience the soul-satisfying cool drink, not of judgment, not of condemnation, but of freedom and of life. May we look to him confessing our thirst. May we receive the finished work of Jesus as a satisfying drink. In Jesus' name, amen.